Sing this with me if you know it. I think many of you will because we're going to end with it at the end. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Remember how the Gospel of Mark began? Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, in a kind of a paraphrased translation, puts it this way. After John, the baptizer, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's good news, saying, Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust in this good news. The kingdom of God. What would you say is sort of your central uh, paradigm, or it's not my favorite word, but I couldn't really think, your, your controlling perspective, the main one, when you think about the Bible and Christianity and what the gospel and the way of salvation are all about? And I think many of us would say, well, my salvation, that I'll get to go to heaven instead of hell. Others might say, well, I'd like to think of myself as kind of a spiritual person. So, you know, spirituality and, and living a meaningful life and, and being a part of a cause bigger than myself. Others, I'd like God's blessing on my life. And so my, my family life, my, my business. So... That's kind of, I guess, how I usually think about the Bible. For some, sort of kind of personal therapy. And most of the time when I engage with Christianity, I'm sort of trying to kind of fix something about me or myself. All of that is entirely understandable. But I do think it's worth noticing that when Jesus teaches and preaches again and again the controlling paradigm for him, the phrase that he keeps coming back to again and again, as we'll see again this morning, is the kingdom of God. And if I said, okay, tell me what Jesus means by the kingdom of God and why it's so central to his teaching, ministry, and mission, if you're like me, you're probably like, uh, I'm not all that sure. That's not one of the big ones for me. And it wasn't for me. You know, I was a pastor. I went to seminary. And this wasn't a primary paradigm. And so it seems to me that if I'm going to understand the Bible rightly, it's best that I stick as closely as I can to its language even and its priorities. Let me give you the second biggest evidence about the priority of the kingdom of God beyond even how often the phrase appears in the teaching of Jesus. And sometime this Lord's Day, get your concordance or use your app and find out just how often the phrase does appear. But 
The other way that it's so prominent is one very easy for us to miss, and that is in the word Christ. Because when we hear Christ, many of us, understandably, kind of think that was Jesus' last name. Like, you know, Phillips or Powers or Stanaway or something like that. It's not a last name, it's a title. What is it a title? What does it mean? King. The anointed king. The son of David who was going to come prophesied in the Old Testament to bring back the reign of God. What I'm saying is, every time in your New Testament you read Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus or Christ, for a while at least, say, think, king, king, king. You do that and you'll really ratchet up and realize, wow, kingdom is an absolutely dominating, if not the central theme of the New Testament. And yet to me, it's something kind of small. I, I need to rehabilitate that. And so even some of those other paradigms that I talked about, my salvation, my spiritual improvement, my, my unintentionally, when we make it about ourselves and our own plight, and not mainly about God and his rightful rule, I think accidentally we skewer things again and again right from the start. Now, God is so gracious and God is so glorious that his kingship does mean forgiveness for me and heaven instead of hell if I repent and believe and blessing on my life and in my family and in my business, rightly understanding those things. It is the abundant life to come under the kingship of Jesus. But as C.S. Lewis warns us, if you take a good thing that's supposed to be secondary and try to make it the primary thing, which ought to be the glory of God, then even a good thing can go bad. And that can happen in our religion and spirituality. This week I was reading a great little book, I mentioned it on my Facebook page, and I just want to recommend it to you this morning. Uh, for a long time I've been kind of looking, if someone's interested in Christianity or they've just become a Christian, what is a good book that will, in a readable, understandable, biblically faithful way, describe what it means to become a Christian in the first place and to start to live the Christian life? And the book I would really now recommend is called Right Side Up which he's talking about, we've been living upside down ever since sin, so God brings us right side up. Right Side Up by Paul Grimmond, G-R-I-M-M-O-N-D. And there were two lines in that book this week that really hit me. You don't treat God as God because it will make your life better. You should treat God as God because it's the only right thing to do in God's world. In other words, because he's king. Because he's creator, he's supreme authority. That, even back behind and before me getting saved and blessed and all of that, that is the fundamental reality that should compel my conversion and my life as a Christian. Because God in Jesus Christ is king. Well then, what is the kingdom of God? We've studied it before, but here's a good basic definition. The kingdom of God means God's people 
in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. And think Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve created perfect in a perfect world where God's people, in God's place, the garden, under God's rule and blessing. It was a beautiful, glorious place. And then they weren't. Why? Because they rebelled against the rightful king. They never should have. Our rebellion was ludicrous. There was zero reason for it. Yet they rebelled. They became treasonous. Now, they're no longer God's people under God's rule, so they don't get to remain in God's place. And they're cast out of the garden. But even there, there's the Genesis 3 promise that God is going to send the snake crusher who's going to crush the serpent's head. And the gospel of the kingdom, the return of the reign of God, it's funny how some of our main cultural stories seem to kind of mimic the real one, the main one. The return of the reign of God is the unfolding really throughout the rest of the Bible. And so, as we saw in Mark chapter uh, 1, when Jesus starts his ministry, what does he say? Here comes the kingdom. But boy, it doesn't look like it, even in the ministry of Jesus. This is what it looks like. I thought Rome was going to get it. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God returns. And that's what the parables start to explain. The kingdom's going to be ultimately postponed until Christ comes back, Christ the King, comes back in glory. And so the message of the kingdom now, after the fall, is not simply that God is King. You know, sometimes we sing, Lord, you reign, you reign, you reign, and there's a part of me that's like, I hope this isn't what life is like when God reigns. I hope this isn't how things are going to go in the world, on the planet, when God is reigning. So now it's this kind of mystery form. There is going to come a time when God fully, directly, and completely takes charge again. That's what we're praying for when we pray, Thy kingdom come. So there's a sense in which it's already, but there's a way big sense in which it's not yet. The kingdom of God, though, is coming, and the different parables and teachings of Jesus describe different aspects of the kingdom of God. So first we can ask, who will populate this kingdom? Who will be a part of it? It's citizens and subjects. New Testament language, who's going to inherit it? What are kingdom people like? Well, Jesus, early on in his ministry, gives a sermon about the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, starts out, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he gives the other Beatitudes that talk about kingdom characteristics. The final Beatitude ends the way the first one started, to signal that they all go together. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes give you kind of a character profile of kingdom people. Remember again what the fundamental confession in the waters of baptism is, according to Paul in Romans chapter 10. Jesus is Kyrios, Lord, synonym for king. The terms of the Great Commission are you go to make disciples 
followers of all the nations. How are they characterized? They're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then what? You teach them to obey everything which they find spiritually beneficial and agreeable. Right? You should have either chuckled or grimaced or something at that point. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Let me tell you this. If you only go with the parts of Christianity and the teachings of Christ that you agree with, he might be your guru, but he's not your king. And he's supposed to be your king. That's what conversion is. And so, as one writer says, through the gospel, we invite, we command people to submit to Jesus. They ought not to have ever rebelled. We ought not to. We've got to stop it. Through the gospel, judgment is passed on those who reject him. We're ambassadors of the coming, returning, coming back king. This world is in rebellion. And in the mystery of providence, he's permitted it for a while, but he's not going to let it go on forever. He's going to come back and reassert his rightful reign. In the meantime, Christians are ambassadors representing that returning king, saying, you need to switch sides and swear allegiance rightly again to the right king. If people acknowledge his lordship, they will experience his coming rule as blessing and life and salvation. But if they reject, they will experience his coming as conquest and deserve judgment. Let me be very clear. Every one of us in the room, you are in one kingdom, Satan or the other. I just Every now and then we just need to make sure you understand that. If you have never come through repentance and faith in response to the gospel message that Jesus is Savior and Lord, to bow the knee in an unconditioned surrender and trust to Jesus the King, if that's never happened to you from the divine side, it's being born again, as Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless you're born again, you'll never see or enter the kingdom of heaven. If that has never happened to you, then you are still in the kingdom of darkness. You are still in the dominion of the prince of the power of the air, all the name, the Bible. Jesus himself says, Satan's the prince of this world. He says to Pilate, my kingdom right now is not of this world. And so I just want to say to you, and you might think, well, I'm kind of interested in religious things now, and I try to leave kind of a moral life, and I'm glad for all of that, but what I'm saying is, until you really, truly are converted, born again, repent and believe and begin to follow, please don't be mistaken of where you really stand before the rightful king. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the era for opportunity to find forgiveness and clemency, but it doesn't go on forever. One day, it's too late. And so, it's coming to the place where we recognize the supreme authority of God in Jesus Christ. Now ask, well, how does the kingdom of God then advance? How does it spread from people who are already people in God's kingdom to other people? How does the kingdom of God spread and advance? And what we're seeing in Mark chapter 4, we saw it last week, we see it again now in the verses we'll look at, 
is that the kingdom of God, the metaphor for it is sowing seed. You know, when you talk about, what's your battle plan for the advance of your kingdom? I'm going to farm. What weaponry? Seeds. I'm going to sow seeds. You know, we miss the scandal of that, the shock of that. And yet, Jesus traipses around Judea and Galilee, and he sows seeds. He teaches the Word of God. A method that might seem implausible, but it's exactly what you find is the priority of Jesus and then the apostles in the New Testament. They just keep proclaiming the Word. It's the same method that God has used to bring revival and reformation again and again in the history of the church proclamation, preaching of the gospel and the word of God. So, let me say something and hopefully it'll be kind of memorable in the way I say it. Beware of any version of Christianity or spirituality or evangelism or outreach that is overly dependent on access to an electrical outlet. Because the kingdom of God does not spread via a fog machine, strobe lights, or whatever other electronic wizardry that might enthrall and entertain us. It just spreads through the sowing of the word. In fact, think of the parable of the sower last week. Even when Jesus himself is the evangelist, so that rules out, well, the preaching must not be any good. Nobody wants to say that. So Jesus himself is the preacher, and when he sows the word of God, some people, clueless, careless, no interest at all, nothing. And Jesus doesn't say, I better change my method. And there are other people, he sows the seed, and initially, it's like, yay, and then, nah. And there's this superficial response to the word of God. And Jesus doesn't say, I, must, I better change my method. And there are some who, they really start to respond, it seems like. Luke even says they believe for a while, which is kind of, how do we sort that out? But eventually, life's worries, riches, or pleasures choke out the seed. And it ends up unfruitful. Some people, though, some people, though, when they hear the word of God, they receive it, as Luke's gospel says, with a good and honest heart and hold it fast. And it saves them and it changes them and it leads them to seek. It bears fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. In all of it, it is the working of the word of God, the sowing of the seed, which remember Paul said, you know, I'm not embarrassed by the gospel. I'm not ashamed. I know that the Greeks want philosophy and the Jews want miraculous signs. But when I went to Corinth, I didn't give them what they wanted. I gave them what they really needed. I determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the seed of the word of the kingdom. And he said, I am confident, not embarrassed, 
that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Anyone who ever, ever gets saved will get saved because the gospel has been sown in their heart and mind and life. And so in verse 21 of Mark chapter 4, Jesus continues to kind of spell out the dynamics of all of this. And some of it in these early verses are, I think, some of the most cryptic, tough-to-understand things that Jesus ever said. He said to them, verse 21, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? No. Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden, now, is meant to be disclosed. And whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. In these words, he's exhorting us to properly recognize God's presence and the preview of his kingdom in his person and ministry, even though right now, it sure doesn't look like what Messiah was going to do. It sure doesn't look like the arrival of the kingdom. Herod's doing fine. Caesar's doing fine. But it may be hidden now, but it's not going to stay hidden. It's going to get manifested. It's going to get revealed. And there will be a future openness and clarity. So what's our role in the meantime, verse 24? Consider carefully what you hear. Don't be faked out by the apparent unpopularity of true Christianity. And that a lot of versions of Christianity that seem more dramatic, etc., aren't that into the word and the gospel. Don't be fooled by that. How things look now is not how things are going to turn out in the future. So, consider carefully what you hear. Coming to understand the gospel, even its simplicity, given all the fallenness and the rebellion and the darkness, it's going to take a while with the Holy Spirit helping us. Count the cost. Think it through. With the measure you used, it will be measured to you. And even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever doesn't have, even what they have will be taken away. It kind of sounds like use it or lose it when it comes to spiritual perception. And if you have the great, great blessing right now, the Holy Spirit still works through the word in your heart and mind, maximize that. Make sure you're all in in rightly responding to the Word of God because if you start getting into a lazy habit of being indifferent to the Word of God that comes to you, even what you have, Jesus says, you could lose. It happened in Hebrews 5. We don't have time for it, but the writer says, even though by now you ought to be teachers, you've become slow of hearing and dull of heart. So in verse 26, he also said, this is what the, what? Kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. Jesus is kind of saying, you know, sower, you're not really the crucial part in the whole process. You're not really the big deal. The power and the potentialities is in the seed. So 
you do your part, but let God by his word do his part. You know, uh, you know think about, I know almost nothing about farming and less about uh, gardening, but it is a strange method. I mean, think that you've never heard of farming or seed sowing before, and all you saw was a beautiful garden, and there's tomatoes and cucumbers and radishes. Someone has reported this to me, that these are the contents of a garden. I wouldn't, you know. And there's all of these kinds of, you know, wonderful, tasty uh, foods and all that sort of thing. And you say, I'd like some of those. How do I get some of those? And someone hands you a bag, and it's full of what? This? What do I do with it? Bury it. What? Yeah, bury it. And that's how you get fruit. That doesn't seem... The mistake some in ministry make today is, okay, it's the seed. I'll bury it. I'll sow it. And then I'm going to dig it up and put a heat lamp on it. And then I'll bury it again. And then I'm going to tend to it some more because the seed itself could never do it. The seed itself could never get the work done. I'm going to have to keep helping it. I pray we get to the place where we stop trying to help what doesn't need to be helped. Cultivate, yes. Get the thorns out of the way, yes. But primarily, just let the word of God do the work it's powerful enough to do. All by itself, the soil produces. And then the parable of the mustard seed, verse 30. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like. Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a, what? Seed again. A mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. And some skeptics hear this and are like, that's not the smallest seed. There are seeds. He's not doing botany. He's just describing what they know. And if you live in Israel, the smallest seed you know about is a mustard seed. And he says, Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. And that's an allusion to Old Testament prophecy about when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. The point of this parable is the contrast between the insignificant mustard seed and the fully grown plant that it produces. The lesson is not that the kingdom of God comes by quiet, prolonged growth, but rather that though many might think the manifestation of God's kingdom in Jesus' ministry of the word is insignificant, they will be proven wrong in the day of its full appearance. And Mark's readers in his day and us as readers of Mark today need to learn the same lesson. Do not get faked out by the apparent success or not success of the proclamation of the word of God. It is doing the work that God intended it for, to, for it to do. I honestly do wonder sometimes if we still have confidence in the power of the gospel and the power of the word of God. Isaiah did. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes from my mouth. 
it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It occurred to me just this morning that one of the most serious and common mistakes a minister or a church with its ministers can make is to think that the ministry of the Word of God only succeeds in carrying out its purpose, its divine purpose, when it produces a favorable response. But that's not what the Bible actually says, and Jesus' own ministry confirms it. Jesus himself said in John chapter 12 and verse 47, if anyone hears my words and doesn't do them, doesn't put them into practice, I do not judge him, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You see what Jesus is saying? And it's said other places in the Bible, too. Every time... Please realize this. Every time you encounter the Word of God, you respond. You can't not respond. And if I respond, if you respond in belief and allegiance and submission, it does its saving, sanctifying, transforming work and accomplishes God's purpose that way. But if the Word of God comes to you and you don't respond in belief, and submission and allegiance, then it still does its work. It does the work of intensifying and exposing your guilt and hard-heartedness and the deservedness of the judgment you will one day face. You had even more light and you rejected it. It did its work in that case too. So, what's our role? We leave the results to God, and our role is to be as faithful and pure and accessible and accurate and clear as we can be in proclaiming the Word of God. And the church is continuously tempted because it seems like the results sometimes are kind of meager to try some other method, but it always has to resist that temptation. It had to, in Paul's day, when he was handing over ministry, about to be killed himself, to people like Timothy and Titus. So he writes in his very last letter, in the very last two chapters of his letter to Timothy, and Timothy 3, uh, uh, 2 Timothy 3.13, evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse. What do you do in a theological and ecclesiastical and cultural climate? When evildoers and impostors are going from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. As for you, Timothy, here's the strategic planning. Continue. Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able only to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Why does Scripture have this unique and saving wisdom? 
Because all Scripture, like no other words, all Scripture is God-breathed. That's why. All Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, serving God, doing God's work in ministry is thoroughly equipped for every good work Every good work that God wants South to do will be done via the ministry of the sowing of the seed of the Word of God. If that doesn't accomplish it, it's not God's work. He doesn't care if we get it done. And so Paul goes on to say, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His... Good. You could almost have guessed. Kingdom... I give you this charge. Proclaim the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. When it seems convenient to preach the word, and even when it kind of doesn't. It's like, oh, pastor, there's going to be this uh, sports thing, and they want to say a few things. Probably just kind of keep it kind of light, because it's just sort of an entertain. Nah, I'm going to preach the word, even out of season. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, consumer-driven church, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And some who do ministry malpractice will give them what they want to hear. But you, Timothy, recognize they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth. Terrible move. Because unlike gospel truth, myth won't save, they won't sanctify, they'll get no one to heaven. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all these situations, even if it means hardship, and do the work of an evangelist. What is the work of an evangelist? He sows the seed of the word of the kingdom, that Jesus is the Lord who saves. That's how you discharge all the duties of your ministry. And so Jesus, as you read about him, he just travels around sowing the seed, knowing that God is glorified in judging unbelief and disobedience as well as in pardoning, saving, and transforming the believing and the allegiant. As I said before, Everyone in the room is in one kingdom or another. And if there's never been a time when you have deliberately responded to the gospel in faith and repentance, you remain in the wrong kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew, in the sermon about the kingdom, not everyone in the habit of calling me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who will? Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he ends that chapter this way. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, everyone in the habit of hearing, every Sunday or at least some of the Sundays church-attending people who hear these words of mine and puts them into practice, good move. You're like a wise man who built your house, your life on the rock, 
the rains are going to come, the streams will rise, the winds will blow and beat against your house, yet it doesn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and whatever else, don't put them into practice. Then another process is playing out because the floods are going to come, the river is going to rise, the storm, including the storm of final judgment, is going to beat against you. And it says, and there's a terrible crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. He taught as the king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that every one of us will realize that our job is to consider carefully what we hear. The seed of the word will save and forgive and guide and direct and transform and sanctify if we'll rightly and habitually respond in belief and faith and submission. But it will also work, it will work against us when we refuse and reject. We thank you that now is still the time when people can find forgiveness and salvation. And we would pray for anyone here this morning still outside of Christ, that they would talk to one of us pastors or to a Christian friend sometime this week in a very real way to make sure that they've crossed the line and switched allegiance again to this world's true and rightful king. And for Christians, may we remember the blessing of a freely given forgiveness that we might begin to follow Jesus as king. We pray in his name.